This is Macro Horizons, episode 92, 2020, a record year, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of October 26th. And as we ponder an extremely strong third quarter real GDP print, we're reminded that not all records are good, if we've learned nothing from 2020. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, it was a classic episode where we saw the price action itself as the most compelling development. Specifically, the 10-year sector finally experienced a clear and definitive breakout in favor of higher rates. We saw the 80 basis point level give and 10-year rates drift as high as 87 basis points. Along with this price action, we did see a steepening of the curve, although that is to be expected given that the curve shape at this stage is simply a directional trade. What now remains to be seen is whether or not this weakness can be carried through to the presidential election. There's a great deal of uncertainty associated with the outcome of the election, although we maintain that the outcome itself is less important than a quick resolution to move past the event risk and to resolve any uncertainty as we focus on the year ahead. We've also shifted to the point in the year where we tend to see a seasonal bias higher in Treasury yields between effectively now and the end of the year. We'll make the argument, however, that because of the November elections, the bulk of the price action will occur in the latter part of the fourth quarter. This is very consistent with what we are seeing from a technical perspective. The Treasury market has been coiling for quite some time, and we have yet to see the magnitude of a breakout that the technicals would suggest. We've seen a modest repricing toward higher rates, and this reflects supply considerations, at least on the margin, as well as some positive economic data. All that being said, we still expect that the larger bearish impulse will occur at the end of this year or the beginning of 2021 as investors move beyond the political implications from Washington and start to focus further on the recovery and the pace of the pandemic. This isn't to suggest that a repricing higher in rates is without fundamental backing. Recall that at the beginning of the pandemic, expectations were for the recession to have a more significant impact on not only the labor market than it ultimately did, but also the inflation complex. So as we have seen the labor statistics start to improve, at least versus expectations earlier in the year, 
and core inflation continue to edge higher, it follows intuitively that the path of least resistance would, in effect, be toward higher rates, with the caveat that those expectations have been tempered by the uncertainty associated with the election. So as we move forward, once we have clarity from Washington, the stage will be set for a more durable repricing. So, Ian. That's me. We got our sell-off. Next stop, 1%? Well, the sell-off that we got that brought 10-year yields solidly back above 80 basis points, and we're kind of consolidating in that range at the moment, increases the chances that by the end of the year, we see 10-year yields at least momentarily trade above 1%. That said, we're still early in the process. Recall that we need to get through the election before investors will truly be comfortable trading the series of positive economic releases that we've seen over the course of the last several weeks. And by that, I'm referring to another drop in the unemployment claims, continued growth in terms of the goods producing sector. And if the consensus is to be believed, we're going to see a record high real GDP print in the week ahead. Yeah, the first look at Q3 GDP on Thursday is all but guaranteed to show an eye-popping figure. I mean, the current consensus is at 32% quarter over quarter on an annualized basis. And while, don't get me wrong, that's a very impressive bounce, it still leaves overall GDP in real dollar terms well short of where we ended 2019. So while it's not a true quote-unquote V-shaped recovery, the speed with which the economy is recovering, with a nod to the influence of base effects, should slowly start to be reflected in market pricing, even if that doesn't bring us back to pre-pandemic levels. And on that note, we're also not talking about Treasury yields returning to pre-pandemic levels. As we've seen over the course of the last several months, the Fed's aggressiveness in lowering rates and expanding the balance sheet really has effectively capped how far rates are going to be able to back up for the next several years. This is particularly true in the very front end of the curve, where Two-year yields have been in a range between 10 and 20 basis points and will be for the foreseeable future. What I think is fascinating is that the practical definition of the front end of the market has extended out from the two-year sector to the three-year sector and is flirting with the five-year sector. However, the bearish price action that we've recently seen has been far more negative for the five-year sector than it has for twos or threes. So if there is a crossover sector that is flirting between being characterized as the front end and the longer part of the curve, it would intuitively be the fives. And we've seen some of that play out in euro dollar space as well, with interest in positioning for potentially higher front end rates as early as 2022, 2023. Again, not our base case scenario. We continue to see the Fed on hold for the foreseeable future, consistent with what they've communicated via their projections. There has been some chatter about how the evolving political landscape in D.C. might play through in monetary policy terms. We find it unlikely that the Fed will change their monetary policy stance simply because we have a blue sweep or some other outcome from the election. In fact, lower for longer has become such an important facet in financial markets at this stage in the pandemic that any deviation from that on the part of policymakers would put risk assets in jeopardy. And as we've seen, there is some degree of vulnerability, even as the S&P continues to push back toward those record highs. 
And while it may be somewhat counterintuitive to suggest the price action will play out in the same direction, if not the same scale, regardless of the ultimate outcome of the election, the reality is that the monetary policy backdrop will not be changing for at least several years. Sure, there's starting to be some speculation about when it is we'll see rates off the zero lower bound, but it's safe to say that that'll be a 2022-2023 problem at the very earliest. And this goes a long distance in helping explain why we saw 530s reach its steepest level since immediately in the wake of the last presidential election. Now that prior resistance in that benchmark curve has been broken, at least from a technical perspective, this should provide a comparatively cleaner read on how the market is interpreting the economic fundamentals, while at the same time demonstrating the Fed's control of the front end, out to the three, and even to an extent, the five-year sector, exactly as you highlight, Ian. Well, some might say that a counter to that would be the strong sponsorship that we saw for this week's 20-year auction. Yeah, it was another generally strong auction for 20s, and now that we've made it through two full refunding cycles, the fact that we're continuing to see strong bids at auctions, not just for 20s specifically, but the long end generally, gets back to something that we've held for quite some time on the auction front. And that is that while these record large auction sizes can surely nudge yields higher in order to help the takedown, it's not really supply that's driving these moves in the back end. And this is demonstrated well this week by the fact that even though we saw a good stop through at the 20-year auction, that did not immediately portend a rally back into the previous range. If anything, it's encouraging that we saw a period of stabilization at these higher and steeper levels over the past few days, because that just points to a market that took down $22 billion of a 20-year bond in stride. And as we've noted in the past, the outright number of 20-year bonds pales in comparison to 10s and 30s, but we have started to see that market share start to increase as the new benchmark takes hold and there's more activity in the sector. Even in that context, however, we still tend to focus on 10s and 30s, both from a technical perspective as well as through the lens of interpreting the fundamentals. As we contemplate the next move for 10-year yields, the most meaningful support between here and 1% is going to be that weekly close at 89.5 basis points. Beyond there, we have 95.5 basis points, which represents the yield peak from the 5th of June. So with those two levels in mind, the beginning of the week ahead will be an important litmus test for the struggle between the dip buyers and those attempting to push rates higher as we target a bit of optimism between now and the end of the year. One of the other recent takeaways, at least on the political side, was that the final presidential debate did very little to alter the market's expectations for the election outcome itself. And as we're always quick to point out, it's far less about who wins the election at this stage than it is that we have a clear and decisive answer sooner rather than later. Extending the uncertainty associated with the election will simply serve to weigh on risk assets and presumably cap how far rates are able to back up in the current environment. And an important difference between now and the last time we saw 10-year yields approaching 95 basis points is that in that early June episode that you highlighted, that was in the wake of the 10 million job upside surprise in NFP and was more of a knee-jerk and then subsequent retracement rather than an actual recasting of expectations on the trajectory of the recovery. This time, however, the fact that we've slowly seen the yield range nudged higher, 
a temporary period of consolidation and then subsequently nudged higher again reflects less of this knee-jerk spike in yields only to be brought back down to earth by the realities of the pandemic and more a slower incorporation of the incoming information and, of course, hopes on the next fiscal deal. The details on that, of course, remain to be seen, but given the fact we've made it so close to the election, the actual economic impact on this point, whether an agreement comes before or after November 3rd, is really a moot point. It's safe to say that a deal of some form is coming, which I would argue has added staying power to the latest moves we've seen in rates. And I wouldn't disagree, although I would caution that from a technical perspective, we are seeing momentum push into oversold territory in treasuries. So solidly above 80 on both the fast and the slow stochastics has typically indicated that the treasury market is due for either a correction back into the range or an extended period of consolidation to work off some of those extremes. What I find fascinating is there's a bit of a divergence at play. Typically, given the momentum profile in the treasury market, we would expect equities to demonstrate the exact opposite, which would be overbought. So oversold treasuries correspond with overbought stocks. But at the moment, we see momentum actually drifting lower in equities as the consolidation in the stock market, which followed a pretty significant spike, continues to play out. So it's unclear how that divergence resolves, but it is worth noting, especially as we enter the pre-election run-up, where one should expect choppy price action given all the uncertainties surrounding the event risk. And I would also add to the list of things helping explain that the viral resurgence we're seeing in Europe. A variety of countries on the continent have re-implemented restrictions, albeit short of nationwide lockdowns for now. But the fact that we're seeing a concerning acceleration in the pandemic in places like Germany, France, Italy, Spain, reminds me at least of the lead up to the period we saw domestically in March and April. Now, clearly the protocols, the procedure, and the medical advancements between then and now are meaningfully different, so I'm still hopeful that another broad lockdown will be avoided. And the more localized approach we've seen thus far, both in Europe and domestically in response to the rising case counts, is encouraging in this regard. Not saying that takes another complete lockdown off the table, but some of these worries help explain some of the price action we've seen over the past week or so. Well, at least one key takeaway from last week's trading in the treasury market is that we are no longer in a very boring range-bound market with no chance of a breakout. I just really wish it didn't need to be accompanied by another outbreak. Is, is this an outtake? In the week ahead, the treasury market will find some degree of equilibrium as we approach the November 3rd presidential election. There are a variety of events in the interim, including the two five and seven year auctions in the week ahead. But the most important event from a fundamental perspective will be the release of third quarter's real GDP print. The consensus is currently for a greater than 30% bounce in the third quarter after a dismal print in the second quarter. Even taking into account base effects, it's impressive to see expectations for a 38.7% quarterly annualized increase in personal consumption. The personal consumption figures, particularly on the service side, will be pivotal in driving expectations for the path of the recovery 
as well as the transition back toward some version of normal in the quarters ahead. Gauging how permanent some of the changes in consumption patterns will ultimately end up being will provide context for how quickly the real economy can recover back to 2019 levels and beyond. We also get several updates from the housing market, including Case Shiller, new home sales, and pending home sales. Consumer confidence will also help lay the groundwork for future spending expectations, as well as insight from the report's labor differential, which will help refine estimates for the October non-farm payrolls print. Recall that the upcoming employment report has the potential of being overshadowed by the presidential election in the event that we don't have a consensus outcome or a known result by the time we get to Friday, November 6th. The technical profile across markets speaks to a period of consolidation, and this fits well with the fundamentals. Given the relevance of the upcoming election, investors will remain reluctant to establish or change any significant positions until more detail is available from Washington. Let us not forget month-end considerations, so we will be keeping an eye on the shape of the curve and the ability to re-steepen in the wake of the upcoming auctions with the acknowledgement that, if anything, the momentum profile would suggest a correction back into the prevailing range, which will challenge any re-steepening impulse and will conform with typical month-end bull flattening trends. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the Postal Service plays such a key part in the 2020 election, we'd like to offer a tip of the cap to the local letter carriers. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of politics stays these carriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. 
Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.